are here, and I'm excited that all of you are here, and I'm excited that we are closing out Revelation. I'm actually feeling a little sad, to be honest with you. Um, it's just, it get, this has just been so good, um, and I'm thankful that we've been in it. Uh, if you haven't been here, I'll, I'll catch you up to speed real quick. Um, we've been in the book of Revelation over the last few months now, um, and we are closing it up this week and next. Um, and this is, this is like the really good stuff. There's a couple parts that are just really good. Revelation 4 and 5 are just really good. A few other parts. Uh, these are, are some really good sections. Um, but uh, for the way that we're interpreting the book of Revelation, I just want to bring clarity to you. If you're new or if you haven't been able to track with us, we're, we're seeing Revelation in four ways, really important ways as we navigate through the interpretation of it. First, we're seeing it as a letter. It is written to real people in real time, and so it can't mean to us what it didn't mean to them. So it's a letter. It's written to people. Uh, second, it's an apocalypse, which means it's an, uh, the way we interpret it is important to us. It's not literal, obviously. It's, a, uh, it's, it's designed to hook our imagination and awaken us to something deeper uh, than what we realize. It's an apocalypse. Third, it's a prophecy. Man, it brings comfort and conviction simultaneously, and it has this beautiful ability to do so. And then lastly, it's a liturgy of worship. It's designed to stir our hearts to Jesus and to worship him. And so over our time together, um, we have been going through that. And so uh, I'll begin here. Um, I'm sure we all have uh, been through a legit fog before. Yeah, where you're like driving and it's a little scary, you know, like early in the morning or late in the evening, the, the fog begins to set and all of a sudden you just begin to feel a little bit anxious. You begin to wonder if you're going to survive, um, where maybe you put your brights on and it just makes it worse. Uh, coming back from Asbury, I went to school at Asbury in Kentucky, driving home, uh, going through the mountains, fog would just set randomly. And when it did, it was pretty intense. It was one of those like moments where you put your flashes on, you go under the speed limit, you kind of naturally go to 10 and 2, which you never do, but in fog you do. You know, you begin to feel a little intense. It's like bad, bad. Uh, but as it lifts, it's like 4K, right? It goes from like, I can't see anything to, oh my gosh, the creation's beautiful, and I couldn't see it before. And it just happens quickly, and the fog oftentimes can set and cause you to not really understand where you even might be. But our life is a fog. We live in a fog, a fog of life. Life is a fog, and that's what John wants us to not forget as he navigates this text with us. As Jesus communicates to him, we're in this spiritual fog where there's like a lot of confusion and where sometimes we don't understand a lot of things. Things, things are not as they seem. Things won't always be this way. Sad things will come untrue, but right now they're still sad. And in this section we are in today, the fog begins to lift. The fog of shame and sin and betrayal and decay and sorrow and death begins to lift. And, and in this section, it's the last time we hear of sin, we hear of death. And the next week, our imaginations are exploded by the reality that it's now in the rearview mirror, never to be mentioned Again, and it's not to not be mentioned again because God wants us to avoid that reality. Jesus will forever have scars in his hands and feet inside. But it's going to be a reminder that the former things are now behind us and new things are ahead. And we look forward to that. See, Revelation is giving us this picture of the fog beginning to lift. And you know, we need this book. As I've navigated through it, one of the things I've realized is the enemy has stolen it from us. Like he's made it weird made it irrelevant, made it unknowable. 
And so we just avoid it, right? Like, can we just be honest? Like, before we've gotten into this together, it's like, can we just not talk about Revelation? It's just too weird. The timelines, everything that happens, all of it is just weird. But as we've gotten into it together, it's, it's been a lifeline. It's reminded us, like, there's a bigger story going on. There's a real dragon trying to destroy you, and there's a, there's a lion lamb who's coming to rescue us. See, we will miss the clear picture that it provides. This picture that church Remember, it's going to clear up. This picture that it's not always going to be uh, bad. The dragon will be destroyed. It's not always going to be sad that he's coming to wipe away our tears. So we need this in our guts to follow Jesus well. Like We need this reminder that it's going to finish in this way. So the fog is going to lift. And so we're going to enter this final battle that we're going to see here in Revelation 19 and 20. It's not really a battle, but it is perceived as a battle. It's, it's not a battle because the battle was actually already won way before, but we're going to make sense of that in a minute. And so two things I want us to see this morning. I want us to see the man that's put on display here, and I want us to see the millennium. So we're going to go into that. Yes, I will talk about the millennium a little bit, talk about wild things here. We just, just hit everything with Revelation. So we're going to hit this man that's revealed in Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. It says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Father, I ask as we navigate through this, I pray that you would give us wisdom and, and revelation to know Jesus better. Help the fog to lift in our souls that we would see you more clearly by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So it says, heaven opened. This is a, a window. There are four windows that we've seen so far in Revelation 4. Uh, a window opened. And again, this isn't chronological. It's random. So a window opens in Revelation 4. A window opens in Revelation 11. A window opens in Revelation 15. And then lastly, a window opens in Revelation 19. And so these pictures that John is seeing, that John, uh, Jesus is showing to him. And so John saw our captain. He saw the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he's told to behold something. What is he told to behold? This man. The command is to behold. That's the command. Behold. Not to go. Not to witness. Not to love. Not to overcome. The command is to behold. And when we behold, we go. When we behold, we witness. When we behold, we love. And when we behold, we overcome. He's reminding us of first importance. Behold the one you're called to follow. So heaven is open, and the main event of heaven is on display. This Jewish man who's like a lion, like lamb. 
And he rides this conquering king. As a conquering king, he rides this, this stallion. And then we just read these 11 statements about this one, Jesus. And I love to walk with you through them. In my Bible, when I, when I first was trying to, I was part of a ministry where Revelation was kind of goofy. And it didn't really make sense. It was about timelines and it wasn't helpful. And then I began to try to read it in the way that John, I believe, taught us to read it, and which is Revelation 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I began to go through reading it, and I would star any time that the book talked about Jesus. And so in Revelation 19, we get 11 characteristics about who Jesus is. The first, it says that he is faithful and true. That's who he is. He's not safe. He's not safe, but he's ridiculously good. And he alone can sit and judge. He's the only one able to judge. And he comes faithful and true, and he judges and makes war with righteousness. That's the second thing we see. He's faithful and true. We see he judges and uh, makes war. That's the second thing we see. That his war is a war on sin. It's a war on death. It's a war on everything under the rule of the dragon. And he comes to make war. The third thing we see is that his eyes are like flames of fire. He sees right through us. It's like that story in 1 Samuel 16 where, where Samuel's told to tell Jesse, the father of uh, David, to go bring all of his sons to Samuel. And so he brings all of his sons but David, and he brings the best looking and the greatest ones. And then Samuel, God says to Samuel, he says that, he, that God doesn't see the way that man sees. The man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees right through us. We can't wear a mask before this God. He sees right through us, which is why we say, come as you are and don't stay there. Because we recognize that his eyes are like a flame of fire. His eyes are piercing and can see right through us with nothing hidden. And then the fourth thing is that his head, on his head are many diadems. On his head are many crowns, many crowns on one head. In contrast, if you remember as we've navigated through this, there's been beasts that have had many heads that have crowns on top of them. But these crowns that Jesus had has are far superior, and he doesn't need multiple heads to carry these crowns. He has one head that carries many crowns. He is the king. Fifth, he has a name no one knows but himself. What the heck does that mean? Well, Charles Spurgeon, tell us what it means. He says this, One other thing John saw, and that was his name. But here he seems to contradict himself. He says that he had a name which no man knoweth, yet he says that his name wore, his, gosh, am I saying this right? That his name wore the, was. I copied this from the internet, guys. I didn't even... <clears throat> He says that his name was the word of God. We need to get on to the person that wrote this post because it's wrong. Um, yet he says that his name was the word of God. Oh, but it is all true. For in such a one as our master, there must be paradoxes. No man knoweth his name. None of you know all his nature. His love passes your knowledge, his goodness, his majesty, his humiliation, his glory, all these transcendent, your kin, you cannot know him. Oh, the depths. And no one graduates from the school of Jesus. There's a name on, that no one knows. 
Jonathan Edwards says about him that there is an admirable conjunction or meeting of diverse and paradoxical elements in the person of Jesus Christ. There's no one like him. There's none like him. Lion yet lamb. Servant yet king. God yet man. Conquered yet conqueror. Warrior yet gentle. Creator yet created. Merciful yet just. Everything we could dream yet so much more. The name on him no one knows. Sixth, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. What's happening here? The blood on his robe isn't from the war. This blood is his own blood. It's a reminder of how he conquered. See, he won the battle over evil and sin with his own blood, which is on the robe that he comes with, dying in the place of the world to rescue us from the dragon, clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Seven, his name is the word of God. This is unique that John is using here. In John 1, he says, in the beginning was the word, same author, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being, which has come into being. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word has a name, and that name is Jesus. See, because He created all things, we can overcome. Who is able to overcome? What political power can withstand this one? What economic power, or military power, or spiritual power, what dragon, what beast can withstand this one? He is the word of God. And for those who were listening to this under the oppression of Rome, hearing this brought such life to them that the one they're following is the conqueror. And for us today in unstable times, there is deep security for us to let us not forget the same hope that the first century church needed and received is the same hope that we need and we can receive through this. Eight. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword to strike the nations. As he created, so he will recreate. Nine, he will rule them with a rod of iron. See, this rule is final, but the other translation for rule is that he will shepherd. It's interesting. He will shepherd them with a rod of iron. See, he will always be a shepherd even as he rules. Ten, He will tread the winepress of the fierce uh, wrath of God the Almighty. He is going to and has already carried the wrath of God in our place. And for anyone who trusts in that provision, even for you today, who trust in this provision of the one who absorbs the wrath of God can receive it in the lamb that God gave. And then lastly, the 11th characteristic we see, on his thigh He has a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, the same language that's used here is the language that is used to the Caesar in the first century. And under this rule, the church, remember who actually rules. It's as if the fog is beginning to lift. They're beginning to see what reality is. And for us, we can remember that there is no king but Jesus. See, to the seven churches, who wins? Caesar with his power or Jesus with the simple word? We know the answer. And to us today, who wins? 
Caesar with his technological advances and the economic uh, powers that exist today, or Jesus with a simple word. Let us remember Jeremiah 9 that says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You see these seven characteristics about this man. You know, we have these prominent, predominant views of Jesus, that he's either a baby or he's a hippie, right? Like, that's how we view him. We don't see him as powerful. We don't see him as a warrior, as mighty, who comes with a sword out of his mouth, who comes to conquer death and sin and the dragon, and he is that. He is that. This is who Jesus is. He's terrifying and lovely. Friends, he has a tattoo on his leg that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's what the Bible tells us. He's, this is the not playing around Jesus. This is the merciful Jesus, but time's up, Jesus. Dragon, you're done, Jesus. And this is the one who's coming. Behold, he's coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him. So we're called to keep beholding. Friends, Regardless of what you're going through, you are called to continue to behold this one. He brings courage to our souls in the highest of highs or the lowest of lows and everywhere in between. Don't stop beholding. It reminds me of Aslan. I was listening to the last battle, the final seven of the Chronicles of Narnia that C.S. Lewis wrote. And Aslan's known as the great rescuing lion who created Narnia and also uh, is the true king of Narnia. But we know if you've, if you've read these or if you have kids and you've read these, uh, when Aslan shows up, regardless of how dark it is, Regardless of how much the witch has taken over the day, regardless of what is happening, you know everything's going to be okay when Aslan shows up. Like, you just know it. When the, drag, when the, when the lion comes up in the pages that we read, it's like, okay, it's going to work out. And in the same way, likewise, heaven is open. The writer is faithful and true. And we know, we know everything is going to be okay. Thanks be to God for that. The fog is lifting. We are closer today than ever. The man. Secondly, the millennium. We read about the millennium, which means thousand. We read about this thousand period of time. Let's talk about it. Revelation 12, 21 through 6, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Jesus, or nope, with Christ for a thousand years. Same thing. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. 
Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. A lot's happening here. We hear about this thousand-year reign. We hear that Satan's bound. We hear that they're thrown into a pit. We hear that Jesus is reigning. We hear kind of all these things that are happening. And so as you dissect this a bit more, including verse 7, which I didn't read, there's a total of six times that we read of this phrase, thousand. So as you read through it, you see six times that there's this reference to thousand. So this um, is where oftentimes where in church history where people uh, gather what they believe about this thing called the millennium. So there's three orthodox views about the millennium. I'm going to share them with you. Um, the first is pre-millennial uh, or pre-millennialism. Uh, this, is, this means that there's a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus after he comes the second time. Pre-millennialism. It becomes darker, and then Jesus returns, and then he reigns for a thousand years. That's a way to interpret this text. Second would be post-millennialism. That means that Jesus, there's a, the church gets stronger and stronger and more triumphant and more triumphant over this thousand-year period. And at the end of that thousand years, Christ comes, the climax of that. And then third would be amillennialism. It's symbolic. That Jesus began his reign when he was here on the earth, and Satan was defeated and bound while Jesus was on the earth. All these are open-handed for us. You can believe any one of those and still be within orthodoxy of the Christian faith. So the question we have to ask is, which is most, most faithful to the text? We, we talk about this often. There are closed-handed things, things we're going to die for, and open-handed things. There should be very few close-handed things. Oftentimes in our own tribalism, we have like 90,000 things that are close-handed and nothing that's open-handed. That's a problem. And then we begin to say to everybody to open-handed things that they're heretical when they're actually not heretical. We don't really know what heretical means, but we call it heretical because they don't believe in what we believe. You know what I'm saying? You're not laughing because you do. And so we, we can agree often more than we can disagree when it comes to these types of things. Heresy isn't, he believes different than me, so I'm just going to call him a heretic and throw him out. Be careful with using that word. That's against orthodoxy when we say that someone's heretical. But what's close-handed is that Jesus wins. Okay? What's close-handed is that the best is yet to come. What's close-handed is that the future is not up for grabs. Jesus knows. He's aware. He's going to finish this thing. That's close-handed. What's open-handed is how you interpret the text here. You know, I'm not going to pout in heaven if uh, my view of where I land doesn't, isn't right. Because what's closing is that Jesus is going to win. So we, we, can, we can dance. We can kind of live within the margins here. And so where I haven't always landed, but in recent years I have landed, this is not an official sojourn stance, but I believe that the best way we can interpret this text is to recognize that these thousand years aren't literal. Because every other number that we've read up to this point haven't been literal. Why would this all of a, all of a sudden become literal? And so I would tend towards amillennialism. Um, there's no number in the book that's been literal up to this point. It's symbolic, and it's referencing that, a, you know, he uses a unique term that the Psalms use, that a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. And so the question within that is, so when is Satan bound? If that's true, and this isn't literal, it's symbolic, then when is he bound? Was he bound, or will he be bound, or when he's gonna, is he going to be bound? And so let's consider how Jesus interacted with the cohort of Satan. And let's flip over to Mark, the Gospel of Mark. 
going to read a few verses to us together. Um, And again, the question is within this understanding of the millennium, when is Satan bound? So in Mark 1, um, Jesus comes out of the gate, his first message to the world, and we see this throughout the Gospels, is that the repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is here. The king has landed. So repent and turn to the king whose kingdom is now at hand, is now before us. The kingdom has arrived. And what does that therefore mean? So you fast forward a little later in Mark chapter 1, verse 23, we read this. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. He had a demon. And he cried out to Jesus, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Friends, again, I mentioned this several weeks ago. The demons oftentimes know more about the gospel than we do. They're so aware of what's happening. They know exactly where this thing is going. They know where their future is. And when Jesus shows up, he shows up like a boss before these demons. And they are terrified of him. I thought we had more time. You're here? And they're freaking out that their creator, their maker, who's going to destroy them and finish them is right before them. Let me fast forward to Mark 3, 27. I'll kind of put the bow on this. It says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. He's talking about Satan. There's this conversation and the Pharisees are beginning to say, Jesus is casting out demons with demons. And Jesus is like, you don't even make sense. Let me explain why you're wrong. And so he begins to describe why they're wrong. And the culmination of that is this text, that, that you don't do that, that you have to bind the strong man first and then you can plunder his house. And what Jesus is trying to articulate is that he's here. The kingdom's here. He's bound the strong man, and now he's plundering the house, and now he's sending the church to plunder the house. See, what's interesting is that the dragon, who we've talked about at length, the last time we see him actively at work is in Revelation 12. What happened in Revelation 12? Jesus was born in Revelation 12. And it's in the last time we see the dragon actively, who is Satan, actively working is the same time where Jesus came on the scene. So what does that mean? It means that Satan is currently in prison as his headquarters, and he has minions like the, dra- uh, like the beast and like the harlot that are doing his work in the world. He knows his time is now short, which means this for us, church. The earth is ours as his heirs to plunder it. The earth is ours. There's 2.38 billion Christians in the world. That's a lot of plunder and a lot more to go. See, he is attacking the world while locked up in prison. He's using politics and religious powers to stifle. He is bound. And yet, for the church, the world is ours for plunder. Let me tell you what I mean by that. It was largely accepted in the 21st century that secularism would push out religion. That was like a common thought even in the last 50 years, that post-enlightenment, that secularism was going to slowly suffocate and strangle religion to where it was no longer going to be needed anymore. 
The Washington Post in the last several years had an article highlighting a new study, though, from the Pew Research Center titled, The World is Expected to Become More Religious, Not Less. See, in the world, overall religion is growing and becoming stronger. And a sociologist, Jack Goldstone, said this. He said, sociologists jumped the gun when they said the growth of modernization would bring a growth of secularization and unbelief. That is not what we are seeing, he said. People need religion. See, the thought is, as long as you educated yourself and become modernized, you would no longer need religion. And it's just not true. John Lennon even said in 1966, the Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I didn't, needn't argue about that. I'm right and will be proved right. Well, John Lennon is dead and the king is on the move. <laughs> Tim Keller says this, Demographers tell us the 21st century will be less secular than the 20th. There have been seismic religious shifts towards Christianity in sub-Saharan Africa and China, while evangelicalism and Pentecostalism have grown exponentially in Latin America. Even in the United States, the growth of nuns, which means that people that have no uh, affiliation with any religion at all, has been mainly among those who had been more nominal in their relationship to faith, while the devoutly religious in the United States and Europe are growing. I tell you, friends, Christ is on the move by his spirit in the earth. And we can either sit back or we can respond to the book of Revelation appropriately, allow our imaginations to be awakened and recognize that we have been sent on purpose in the world today. God is at work and he's inviting us to be a part of it. And this is our plunder. The church has plunder to attain. See, Christian faith, it's not shrinking. It's growing whether you realize it or not. And see, we are called into this fight, but the fight isn't with weapons. The fight is with humility and laying down our lives with patience and gentleness and turning the other's cheek and loving our neighbors and praying for those who persecute us. That's how the kingdom advances. It's not by getting the right person in Washington. It's not. It's by laying down our lives and seeing the church erupt by care and service to our neighbors and to the nations, and therefore people seeing that there is a greater, more distinct option than what the world gives us. The strong man is bound, and his plunders for the church and for the fame of the king. And see, it's our act of obedience that becomes acts of war against the enemy. It's those little things. When you got to own that thing with your spouse and you just don't want to and your soul's raging against it and you choose to lay down your life and own it, that's war. It's that moment when you need to apologize to your kids and you don't want to because pride is so in our bones and we choose to lay down our preferences and we serve and we say, you know what, I'm sorry. There's a few things more powerful in the weapons of our warfare than humility and owning our stuff. And that sick, you find out about that sick coworker, you say, no, I'm going to tell him I'm praying for him. And you actually pray for him. If you say that you're praying for him and you don't pray for him, you're not praying for him, you know what I mean? And so we, we, we find out someone's sick and we, we pray for them. And then we follow up and we love them. It's the weapons of our warfare. I mean, why do we have neighborhoods? Why do we have work environments? Why do we have kids? There's plunder before us. 
And again, not with the weapons of this world, but by laying down our lives, looking more and more like Jesus. Friends, the dragon wants to steal and destroy, and he's bound, though he has a headquarters in prison, he is bound. We are not on our heels. He is on his heels. And that's what the book of Revelation is trying to remind us of, to remember the fog is lifting. Remember, this thing doesn't have much more time, and I'm not giving you a time frame of what that is. I have no idea, but Maranatha, I hope it's sooner than later. But this thing is lifting. His time is short, and we're not just called to coast and live this life of whatever we're told to live. We're called to be uh, at the gates of hell and living our lives with sacrifice like the lamb who did the same. See, the man, this one that we just read about, he inspires us into this mission. This mission is not of power, but of sacrifice. This mission is not of conquering, but of service. The fog's going to lift, friends. Not much more time. And this book is designed to give us a map of what is to come. It's a gift to us. Again, it challenges. It doesn't make it comfortable. Christianity was never designed to make you comfortable. It wasn't, it's not designed to get you comfortable, but it's designed to invite you into purpose and what you were designed for as a follower of Jesus. It gives us hope to stay in it. It gives us hope that evil doesn't win. It gives us hope that victory, um, we, we find victory through laying down our lives. It reminds us to not fall into the temptation of Babylon. It reminds us that the king is coming. And sooner than later, He's going to return and we will see his face. And so friends, we see a picture of a man. We see a picture of a millennium. And we're reminded what we're part of. The whole thing about this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Church, don't get sucked in. Church, remember you have something bigger that you're a part of than just trying to fill up that nest egg of retirement. And then golf a lot or fish a lot or whatever a lot. We're invited into something so much more than that. We're invited into this crazy story of a lion-like lamb who's coming again and has invited us into this mission and to conquer by laying down our lives just like he conquered by laying down his life. So we're a part of, and I pray that I would see it, and I pray that we would see it. Amen? The fog is lifting, friends. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks. Lord, thank you that you haven't left us. Thank you that this thing's just not going to continue forever. Chaos of life. That you will end sorrow, you will end sadness, you will end sickness, you will end sin, and you will destroy Satan forever. And God, we give you thanks. And by faith, we try to lift our eyes in the midst of the fog to remember, and it's hard, and sometimes it's difficult in the midst of the chaos of this life, but we want to remember it, we want to lean into it. Help us to remember what you've called us into. And Father, even in this moment, we surrender our lives to you. Help us to be a people that look more like your kingdom and less like the kingdom of this world. Help us to be a people that look more like the fruit of the Spirit and less like this world. God, would you draw near, move among us, God. Father, were convictions needed for us 
for myself and for our community, we invite it. We want clean hands and pure hearts. Lord, whether it's in a relationship or whether it's in our greed or whatever it might be, Lord, if you're inviting us into something greater, I ask that you would stir us to trust you with our lives. Lord, do a deep work in this community. Awaken us to follow you with all of our hearts. When we fall on our face, help us to remember your grace, God. In Jesus' name.